0: Hey everyone and welcome to episode 32 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books from your host David Walters. Today I have the pleasure of chatting with author Max Berry. Max is an Australian who pretended to sell high-end computer systems for Hewlett-Packard while secretly writing his first novel, Syrup, in 1999. In fact, he still has the laptop he wrote it on because HP forgot to ask for it back, but we'll just keep that to ourselves. He put an extra X in his name for syrup because he thought it would be a funny joke about marketing and failed to realize everyone would assume he was a pretentious a-hole. Jennifer Government, his second novel, was published in 2003 with no superfluous Xs and sold much better. Max's third novel, Company, was published in 2006 and his fourth, Machine Man, in 2012, which was based on a real-time interactive web serial written and delivered in real-time one page per day from the website. It made more sense than it sounds. Uh, Max's fifth novel, Lexicon, was named one of the best 10 books of the year by Time. Max also created the online political game Nation States, for which he is far more famous amongst high school students and poli-sci majors than his novels. He was born in March, on March 18, 1973, and lives in Melbourne, Australia, where he writes full-time, the advantage being that he can do it while wearing only boxer shorts. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Max Barry. Max Berry.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. That's um that's boy. That's taking me back quite a long time. <laughs> all those all those years ago. I mean that's um that's like 20 years ago a lot of this stuff now because I've been riding in my boxer shorts for all that time since. Um, and the funny thing about the 20 years that have passed since is now so many of us can be in our boxer shorts remote working from home right now enjoying the life that I have. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing I've been saying uh, especially
0: with like riders and say like, you know, YouTubers and so forth was like, I was already doing this. And so now it's just everybody else gets to do what I do every day.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's chaotic for some people. Obviously, it suits some people a lot better than others. Yeah. If you're the sort of person like probably like most authors who are very happy just being in a quiet space by themselves um, with a computer and not much else and not humans bothering them all the time, then yeah, this is this is pretty good. You don't have the commute. You know, you're not losing that hour, an hour and a half of your day getting to somewhere else and being bothered by people all day long. Um, But then I know for the other type of person where they just need that, that constant human interaction and, and they're now stuck. Uh, by themselves. Um, It's, it's tough. And I know this because they're calling me on their phone because they're they're desperate to talk to somebody.
0: (laughs) Yeah. My wife's kind of that same way. She's a, she's a first grade teacher. So she's used to having 19, you know, first graders come up to her all day, every day. And she's like, I kind of want to go back to school. I mean, I know I complain about how, you know, tiring it is and all this other stuff, but she's like, I mean, I love you, but you're the only person I get to talk to every day.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I have so much respect for the teachers right now. Um, partly because my wife is is also a teacher, librarian. Um, but watching what the what my kids, I've got a 14 year old uh, and a nine year old daughter, and they are doing the remote schooling thing, mm. and it's it's really incredible how their teachers have pulled together these online lessons and um, like if you go into a classroom in an, under normal circumstances and you see how good the teachers are at managing this mass of children like I would be dead in half a day attempting to do that same thing <laughs> and now they're doing that via uh, iPads and laptops uh, yeah. it's just uh, really impressive how they're they're coping under the circumstances and um, yeah I, I just think it's it's amazing teachers are amazing at the best of times and in the worst of times, they go to a whole other level.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, and she, uh, she's she been, like, calling parents the past couple of days and talking to her kids and just kind of seeing how things go in because they really just started the e-learning process on Monday. And uh, and tomorrow she's having her first, like, Zoom call with, uh, like, she's going to do a set of boys and then a set of girls just because right. she she's, like, 19 kids in total is just way too chaotic, so we're just going to separate them. And, um and, yeah, I mean, she's finding it very interesting, but she's like, you know, I'm just as busy at home just doing, like, phone calls and stuff that I would be on my feet all day with kids. Um, oh, of course.
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, um, all right, so just kind of starting uh, our, our little bit of a chat here, uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, about, uh, you know, growing up in Australia and then, you know, kind of going through school, maybe some, uh, some odd and crazy jobs
1: you had growing up? Oh, sure. Well, um, yeah, I am that kid who always wanted to be a writer and uh, would write lots of stories just for fun. Uh, I mean, it's that it's the thing that probably all of us authors have where we just loved books as a kid. We loved to read any spare minute we could get. And I really just enjoyed writing stories as well. Uh, I had really supportive parents, which I'm sure makes a huge difference as well, who always encouraged me to read uh, all kinds of different books and Um, I actually remember one um, from when I was in probably early high school um, and uh, I bought some book and uh, I remember my dad making some comment because it had a girl on the cover and it kind of seemed like a girl's book Uh, and dad made some comment like, you know, is that the sort of thing you should be reading? And I remember my mom really, um, to use an Australian expression, I think um, went into bat for me and like said, you know, what's wrong with that? You know, it's, and really was very supportive of my, um, of my choice to read anything, uh, and so I had that that support, especially from mum, um, growing up, who was really really encouraged me to explore this as much as I could. Uh, in high school, I stumbled on this amazing fact: where if you write short stories featuring your classmates as characters, then they're really interested in reading them. So I would write these horror stories where, uh, like there was uh, there was one where um, I did it about this girl called Jenny, uh, who is this very a well-mannered, proper girl in our class, um, and in my short story, she goes insane uh, and gets hit by a train uh, and and dies. Uh, and this was a really popular story with everyone except Jenny. Um, but then I ended up marrying her, so it all worked out in the end. Um, so that was like a high school, and then I I wanted to become an author, but I was practical enough to realize that that wasn't something you could just do um, as as out of high school and expect to earn a living. So. I went into marketing, which seemed like a good, um, a good place where I could use my interest in creativity, but also had a very practical grounding. So I've kind of got these two sides where I've got the, the creative side that really loves to play around with fiction, but then I am also quite geeky, and I, I had a computer as a Commodore 64 as, as a young kid, and it taught me a love of just typing things into a computer and making it do what you wanted. Um, which is um, just an amazing thing. And I really wish all computers today still had that thing where you turn them on and you have to you have to type into them to make them do something. Because <laughs> now you just tap on the screen, right? It's much more convenient and it's right. prettier and, and everything else. But you don't really get the sense that you are controlling the machine anymore. It's more like, you know, you're pressing a button and mysterious things happen and then it just all does, does the thing. Yeah. You're not making it do the thing. Whereas, yeah, when I was 10 years old, if I wanted to play a game, I had to uh, put the, well, it was probably a cassette at that point, but you had to put the disc or the cassette in the machine. And then you had to type uh, load quotation mark, asterisk quotation mark, comma, eight, comma one. I, I may be messing that up, but, and press enter. And that was just like to list what was on the disc. And from there, you try to run something. So that really um, taught me this, um, uh, this basic lessons about how computers work and how cool they could be. So I have this like, interest in maths and programming uh, and marketing and business seemed like a good sort of meeting place of those two things that also might get me a job uh, that I could earn a living at while I was secretly writing books. So that's more or less what happened. I I did a a Bachelor of Business, majoring in marketing. I uh, got a job for HP uh, in the um, Unix uh, department, which is like their machines for uh, businesses at that point. Uh, and so that was um, that was a good job. I worked with some good people. I got to see inside a workplace, which I've, I found really interesting. And actually, the great thing about that job, too, was I would go into other businesses. So I could go into four different businesses in a day and see these different workplaces and the different sort of bubbles and cultures that exist in all these places. And it has fascinated me ever since how you can stumble across these little cultures of humans where they all, they're all like their little own, own cults, and families are like cults too, and, and businesses are like cults, and every every geographic location has its own little cultural um, uh, quirks as well. Uh, so I found that really interesting to see how um, in one workplace it might be really important, for example, for everyone to wear their ID tags uh, clipped on their belts because that, that, that was the cool fashion in that workplace. But in another workplace, you know, they didn't care. In fact, wearing an ID tag at all was pretty lame, so... It was a completely different standard. So it exposed me to a lot of um, that sort of stuff quite quickly. But I also realized that I didn't want to be selling computer systems for a living for the rest of my life. Uh, So every lunchtime, I would um, go off, I would um, go get some lunch, and I would sit in the passenger seat of my car, which was. a 1979, I think, Toyota Corolla, which I eventually sold for $200 to give you some sort of idea of exactly what kind of vehicle it was. (laughs) Uh, And I would write. So I I wrote um, maybe 200, 300, 400 words in a lunchtime, which isn't a whole lot, but it felt like the most important part of my day where I would actually go home and, you know, if I sold some computers and made some Numbers that counted towards my sales quota, then yeah, that was that was something that was very transient. It felt in that it would be gone again in a year's time, and no one would care. But the three hundred words that I'd written on my novel were going to be there forever. So I've I've been, and that's stuck with me ever since. I've always felt like the most important thing that I do in a day is to build something new, something that's going to be there um, in ten years or whenever. You know, now no one may ever read it, but still, I built it, and it's there. Yeah. So it's um yeah. So I did that, uh, and then I got tremendously lucky um, because I I wasn't sure how you get published, and so I I Google. Actually, no, I didn't Google because Google didn't exist. It was like <laughs> 1997 or something. <laughs> so I, I used AltaVista, Vista, and I typed in how do you get published, uh, and the results that popped up were mostly American because the the web was mostly American back then, and so I accidentally discovered the process for getting published in the US, which was you write a short letter about yourself and your book using a particular format and you mail it out to agent after agent until um, enough of them say no, that you either give up or you break through and someone finally says yes. So um, even though I'd been trying to get published in my own country in Australia, I thought, well, I might as well try this in America as well, since I know how to do it. And I sent out those um, those letters i discovered a thing called international reply coupons which is when you want to send a reply paid envelope to someone but you are in a different country so you have to send them these coupons which are the result of some international treaty that was uh, convened in france like 100 years ago that allow people to exchange um, coupons for stamps Um, and in retrospect i'm not sure what these agents made of these coupons that i included in these envelopes because I've never heard anyone else talk about international reply coupons except myself. So maybe they were all just thrown in the bin, but people appreciated the effort to to include include postage. But yeah, so I went through a bunch of agents and and eventually one of them called me up one day and said that they liked the sound of my book and could I send them some sample chapters and quite by accident, almost I ended up getting published um, by a, a publisher penguin in New York which was fantastic because it meant that I could um, then uh, do this as a living. Like Australia is a very small market, so if I had been the same sort of same achieved the same sort of level of popularity, which is like this not completely unknown, but certainly not one of the best-selling authors, uh, I wouldn't have survived doing it as a living in Australia. Whereas I have been able to do that um, thanks to the US, for which I'm, I'm extremely grateful. So, yeah, that's uh, that's sort of how I got started in, um, uh, in publishing. The other thing I say about um, my early job since you mentioned it is um, I used to pump petrol for a living. And I find this one increasingly interesting in retrospect because at the time it was seemed like a nothing special job. I would just like cars would pull up to the petrol bowser and then I would put petrol in their cars and they would give me 20 bucks and, and drive away. But that job doesn't exist anymore. It's like selling buggy whips. It's, it's become obsolete because uh, I guess there are a couple of states, I think, in the U.S. where it's like law that you can't fill up your own vehicle. But for most of the world, you now you fill up your own vehicle with petrol. And um, even at the time, it was leaded petrol as well, which is now illegal. So I was probably costing myself a few brain cells every time I went to work and right. filled up someone's car with, <laughs> with leaded petrol. But
0: every time yeah, you that was. Sniff. a yeah. sniff. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, that's what I was about to say, Like every time you got a sniff of void, you're just like, all right, there's there's two more.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The thing is, uh, even though it was like a really crappy job looking back on it, it was something that I was quite happy to do. And I always felt like um, that I it, it wasn't a job that people looked down on, which I think is really important. I think no matter what job you do, whether it's pumping petrol or, or writing books or whatever you do, just you feel the need to to be respected and to have other people uh, respect the fact that you're doing it uh, and not look down on it so i I really think that um, as I've as I've grown older I sort of look around and try to um, understand the world uh, better and better uh, and something that's become really important to me is the pride in the work that you do I think it's really important for for people whoever they are to be to find some way to take the pride in their work. And as soon as they don't, then everything starts to fall apart. If you feel like people aren't respecting your work, then you don't care about it, then uh, it becomes shoddy. And, and then we sort of start to disintegrate the fabric of what really binds us all together. Um, but when we have respect for one another and we, we have pride in the work that we do, whatever it is, I think that's that's a terrific thing
0: absolutely absolutely so um, so where do you typically find yourself writing do you have a home office you write in do you like I mean before covid did you like to write in coffee shops
1: <laughs> no yeah no i definitely did not like to write in coffee shops i have done it occasionally uh, but only when the book is going so badly i need some major change of scene to to break me out of whatever mindset i'm trapped in yeah so generally i work from home uh, i really enjoy being able to just go straight to work and, and not have to go anywhere and, you know, put on socially presentable clothes or anything. It's, it's a real, real blessing to have that. Uh, so I have, I have a little office of my own nowadays. Um, I'm a big fan of city views. So when I went to buy a house for the first time, um, quite a long time ago now, I, I always wanted to find somewhere that had a little glimpse of a city. Uh, and I have that now so I, I can go to work and I've got the city of Melbourne, um, right out my window, uh, which, uh, I try not to look at too much, but it's, yeah, it just is a, a great setting for me. Um, the the internet connection thing was a struggle for a while. Like I remember back in the day when you could dial up to the internet or not, um, I would have to make this decision. Like I, if I connected to the internet, then because it was so precious to have that connection, I would have to do all the internet related stuff at once. And then I could spend hours on that and then um, not get any writing done. Uh, So I would have to regulate the amount of time that I spent on the internet each day in order to make sure that I was leaving some internet free time that I could concentrate on writing in. But nowadays, you can't really escape the internet at all. So um, it's become much more integrated with how I work, where I'll be streaming music in the background while I'm writing, or I will flick out of the book and research something really quickly just to um, be able to sketch in the, the rough outline of where the story should be going without making it completely implausible. Uh, And then flip back to the book. Uh, So, yeah, that's my workspace now. Um, I have two kids and a wife in the house pretty much full time now, which is slightly different. Um, but luckily the house is not so small that we're tripping over each other. So yeah, it's uh, it's close enough. Oh, and I want to have a cat and a dog too, which often come in and out of the study.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. Um, so tell me a little bit about your writing process. I'm sure it's changed over the past 20 years, but would you consider yourself? So, so I used to say plotter or pantser, but John scovern I talked to him last night and he, uh, he, he used George R. R. Martin's uh, architect or gardener.
1: Yeah, I've heard that one more and more lately too, um, which I think is a good one. I have definitely become more of an architect um, more recently. Uh, I've always in the past started by just diving into a scene which might be connected to nothing else, just some idea, some situation that that I find interesting. And usually the starting point for me is a situation that is inherently unstable in some way. So that means that there is something about the situation that means it has to change. So I I really feel like change is the most important part of any book that it's any, any story you can mention is either about change or the threat of change. So if I have a situation and I I feel like, okay, this is, this is just inherently interesting. There's some dynamic here that means you've got some people who are going to have to change what they're doing uh, for some reason, or, or you know something in that ballpark, then I might just jump in, write a bit of a scene, and just see where it goes. So I have like that really organic, chaotic starting process most of the time. I don't start with an outline and then try to fill it in. Um, but once I have done that enough to figure out, okay, there's there's something here. There's some core of the book where I like the way. Um, that these four people are interacting, for example, or I like the situation that they're in. There's, there's some, something here that I find interesting and want to explore. Then at that point uh, in the past, I probably would have just kept on randomly writing words and, and hoping it worked out. And it used to be a really organic process of just writing, writing, writing. Oh, it's not working now. Cut out the last scene or so. Go again from there. Whereas now I feel like having written a bunch of books since, I have a better sense of where I'm going to get into trouble and where I'm not. So I do a lot more planning. I've done a lot more planning for Providence than I have done for any other book. Uh, And the one that will be hopefully published after Providence as well, I I planned a lot more. So I feel like there's a really good balance there where if if you plan out from the beginning, I think... I mean I'm speaking for myself of course because every writer is different but for myself if I plan something out from the beginning and then I try to actually write it it's never going to come out on the page as it was in my head like there's there's a there's a big jump from imagining how something's going to be and then actually writing the scene yeah so it's it's a uh, it gets lost in translation somehow there I really need to begin with okay what is the actual scene what are the actual people and what are they actually doing <laughs> And once I've got that, then I can start to think in a more structured way about how it should go. But, yeah, it has to begin with that, that really organic part to me.
0: I gotcha. you. Um, so can you tell me about some of, uh, some of your writing influences, maybe who you read growing up that sort of got you into wanting to write?
1: Yeah, okay. Well, um, especially because Providence is this almost um, old-school sci-fi in that it's a really – Um, simple concept of humans uh, in this war against uh, a mysterious alien force that wants to wipe us all out for some reason. So that is a concept that I read a lot about as a teenager. And, you know, there's a lot of um, probably Philip K. Dick is is the one that comes to mind most, and he's been tremendously influential on me um, in a bunch of ways. Uh, But on the sci-fi front, he would always write these incredibly compelling short stories where They were very short little pieces, but very quickly you'd be filled in about some war with some alien race. And then there was um, this person who also was probably secretly a robot, but not aware of it. But um, it was just uh, the concept and the way that the story would very quickly rip you away from whatever world you were in and put you in this new um, realm of, of unlimited possibility where there could be you know, advanced technology that could um, transport you or powerful weapons or or any of this sort of stuff. I just, you know, gobbled up as a kid um, and has stood in the back of my head ever since. And I've always wanted to kind of go back and, and tell that kind of story. Um, but the thing that stopped me all this time, because that was a long time ago, I used to read all this stuff. Um, but the thing that stopped me was finding a way to do it in a in a way that I would find interesting today, because the reason I, I love those stories as a kid is, is would not be enough for me today. I, I, I can't really read this, those same stories um, because it's we've all moved on a bit from then. The, the genre has been subverted multiple times since. So there needs to be some new level or some nuance you can bring to that to make it fresh and to make it interesting again. So it wasn't until I started playing around with some ideas for some people on a spaceship that I found a way to, to tell a story that I felt could capture both of those things, where it would be still exciting and still um, that feeling of being transported into this high-stakes um, scenario of the old-school um, sci-fi, but also would be would have a very modern feel with some some people that you could... Um, believe in and identify with um, who were asking intelligent questions and um, making intelligent decisions uh, and when those two came together for me it was like yeah this was a chance for me to kind of play around in an area I found tremendously satisfying as a kid um, but also with a bit of a more modern viewpoint
0: I got you. All right, so let's talk about your brand new novel, Providence. So it was just released on the 31st of March. Um, Can you tell the audience a little bit about it and kind of what they can expect going in?
1: Sure. Uh, It's set a couple of hundred years in the future. It's about what happens when humanity makes first contact with an alien species that turns out to be tremendously hostile. And the first thing that happens is that we build a whole bunch of defenses, um, which is Uh, mainly in the form of these gigantic battleships. Uh, So um, they're called Providence-class battleships, uh, and we launch five of them, and each of them has a tiny crew because you don't need too many people when you have uh, gigantic computer-controlled battleships. The computers make most of the decisions by themselves. Uh, They can do almost anything um, better than humans can. And so the role of the humans on board is quite limited. Um, and they discover exactly what their true role is as the story goes along. Um, but, yeah, it was a chance for me to tell a story that was at once on a wide scale in that it was uh, very high stakes, that there was there is um, a, um, a war going on and the decisions that these people make are tremendously important. But it also is not so scattered that it didn't let me focus on who these people are and why they're there. And they're each there for their own reasons uh, that are revealed throughout the book, but yeah, it's um, it's a I guess I feels like to me like a bit of an old school sci-fi um, in that it deals with these big but relatively simple concepts and it dives quite deeply into them. So it's not um, a book about a whole bunch of different things. It's a, a book about. Um, yeah, about these decisions, the isolation that the people experience on board uh, and what brought them there and what they uh, what they do when this uh, incredible battleship that they're on where nothing can go wrong, uh, what they do when things actually do start to go wrong.
0: Right. Yeah. And uh, I was I sounding a little off air. I was like, it kind of reminds me and I forgot to bring this up when I was talking about it. Have you seen uh, the new show on HBO called Avenue Five? Uh, with no it's got a Hugh one. Laurie and Josh Gad and it's basically this um this like cruise ship in space and it's kind of like what happens when things go wrong and they're like thrown off trajectory and they end up like they're in space for a lot longer than they intended to be but it's it's a comedy um right but it, it kind of reminds me and I was telling you about the circle I was like, it kind of reminds me of the circle and this this giant like passenger ship you know but you know a- having read about 75 percent of it it, it kind of feels like that and then like, it, you know, like you were just saying, it kind of really gets into it once things start kind of going wrong. And uh, and I noticed like one of the characters um, at, at one point in time is kind of sitting on his bunk and he feels like he's being watched by the ship. And uh, I thought that right. was really interesting um, because I think I read some interviews you had done before where um, I think I don't know if, if anybody had actually come out and asked if it was a sentient ship, but it doesn't it doesn't kind of have that feel uh, at least early on and it maybe slowly starts to feel like it does. I mean, would you say that you wrote a sentient chip into it or is it really just this computer system's kind of gone haywire and it, or it it can make its own decisions and then kind of makes one that puts everybody in imminent danger?
1: Yeah, that that is a really important question in the book and it's not one that gets answered until quite late. So I won't, Put my own answer on it right here, <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah. certainly uh, and and different characters. Yeah, have their own opinions. So mm-hmm. the the ship at first, at least, appears to be a machine in that it's been programmed. It has an artificial intelligence, but it's not sentient. It's just doing what it's programmed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing about this uh, is that you can't really tell what it's thinking. Um, that once once a program becomes sufficiently complex. Uh, you you give it inputs and it comes out with its own answer, but you're no longer able to follow its logic chain to see how it got there. You just have to figure out, oh, okay, it's it's come out with this decision. We don't know how, and this is basically how machine learning works, where you take a a black box and you throw a bunch of um, pictures of cats at it, for example, and you say this is a cat, this is a cat, this is a cat. You show it a picture of a frog and say this is not. And then on its own, it figures out ways of identifying what is a picture of a cat and what is not. And at the end of that process, if you show it enough pictures of cats, you have a, a program that is extremely good at recognizing cat pictures, but you don't know how it's doing it. It's mm-hmm. got its own logic that's inside the black box somehow, but you can't sufficiently translate in that, that into human terms to, for it to make sense to us. Right. So this is what the crew is dealing with on board Providence, where they have this ship that is extremely good at what it does, which is making decisions about where to go uh, and how to engage these hordes of uh, salamanders, which is the, the name that they use for the aliens. Um, but they And they try to second guess exactly what it's doing and why it's doing it. Uh, and they're responsible for monitoring the ship and making sure that it all seems to be working properly. But they're really limited in what they can do. And one of the things I found um, interesting to do in this book, because it's told from the perspectives of four different people, is there are um, there are times when each person will project onto the ship um, types of personality or, or emotions even of what they think the ship is probably doing or probably thinking. And because the ship is basically a, a black box, and, and we don't know for a long time exactly what's going on, mm-hmm. um, what those projections tell us is more about the person making them than the ship itself. So there is a, um, the, the character Gilly, who is um, probably the most like myself in that he's sort of curious and quite logical. He has a very um, simple uh, view of the ship, and he views it basically as a machine. Uh, Whereas another character, Beanfield, who is a much more emotive person, um, and she's the life officer on board the ship. So her job is to basically make sure that the other three are staying uh, healthy mentally and interacting in a productive way. So she is used to dealing with people uh, and she views the ship in much more human ways and imagines much more human um, feelings and thought processes on behalf of the ship. So, which of those two people are right is something that the book sort of gets into a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But it's um, and it's the same thing with the the enemy as well, because the sh- the book begins with this this enemy that we know is very hostile and very aggressive, and it's not really clear why the enemy is that way. And for some people, it doesn't matter. The fact is, they're in this conflict with this aggressive enemy uh, who must be stopped for the survival of our species. Uh, and for a couple of the other characters, it, it does actually matter a bit. Uh, Gilly, for example, is very curious about, okay, why why are they acting this way, uh, and when their behaviour changes, why is it changing in that way? So the the same sort of dynamic exists there, where they are projecting onto the enemy um, parts of their own personalities that that are uh, I hope revealing in small ways about what kinds of people these these four crew members are.
0: Yeah. Um, so this is your first uh, sci-fi novel set in space. Did you put a lot of research into space itself and space travel or did you kind of, I'm going to go ahead and say, I'm going to use the pants term, did you fly by the seat of your pants and make up your own stuff?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, I, I wrote Providence and right after that I started a new novel which is uh, not set in space, it's set in um, the modern day, it's set in New York City and the difference in the amount of research I had to do between the two books was amazing because the great thing about the space book is, yeah, you can fly this by the seat of your pants. You can make up a whole bunch of stuff and then go back later and figure out the bits that, that need to be changed or tweaked or, or removed altogether because they don't fit with something else. But this, The story needs to have an internal logic, but it doesn't need to be anchored to reality in the same way that uh, a present day book does. So, yeah, the research um the research aspect for Providence is probably, yeah, the least I've done on any book for for quite a while. Um, even Machine Man, which was another very sci-fi book that I wrote, um, that was sort of much more anchored in particular technologies and where it's going., uh, whereas Providence is not really about technology. It's more about the people, uh, and it's about what connects us as people. Um, and so sort it's of, sort of my take also on, the nature of conflict and how there is conflict at the genetic level, there is conflict at the human level, there is conflict uh, above our level, and it's regardless of what kind of life form we are, we are bound together by this, this shared conflict that that we're all a part of, even when we're not aware of it sometimes. like The thing I find um, really interesting, and this is probably another big inspiration for the book, um, I read a non-fiction book called Genome by um, the science fiction, not science fiction, the science writer Matt Ridley. And it opened my eyes to the way that there has been a, a, an evolutionary conflict between different genes uh, in our genome for um, the whole time that our species has existed. And the way that these, um, these wars have been going on at the genetic level that we have no idea about, but we are basically the battlegrounds for these, these wars that go on at, at this tiny genetic level. So I just found that really interesting that, In a way, we are these walking battleships for genes to fight wars against one another. And a lot of the decisions that we make as people to to marry, to fight, to, to protect one another, to sacrifice ourselves, these are all really human decisions and really emotional decisions, but they are informed at some level by our genetic makeup as well. So that was, for me, a direct analogy to what was happening on the ship, where you've got this gigantic battleship that is making its own decisions. It's got some programming that at least set its initial parameters and has guided it towards certain objectives. But it has a very similar relationship to its crew members that we have to our genes, where it's kind of aware of them, but it can't communicate with them directly. The ship never speaks to the crew uh, because it's, it's... it's not able to, there's no shared language between humans and an AI of this caliber. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I found it really, really interesting that whole, that fundamental concept of, um of us being machines built by genes. Uh, and it raises interesting questions about exactly how much free will we have and, you know, a whole bunch of interesting things like that, um, which I have just found um, really curious, like the, the question of, of you know who we are and and why we're here these are these are big questions that everyone thinks about from time to time and the the genetic aspect of it was something that stuck in my head a long time ago and yeah i had a chance to explore that a bit here
0: um so uh what are you working on now so providence is out and uh i know you've got something else bowling i'm sure if not more than one project but what are you working on now
1: Right. Well, the reason it's taken me so long since Lexicon to have a book published is because, well, actually two reasons. First of all, I did struggle a bit after Lexicon because uh, I think it's really important for me at least to, before I start a new book, I have to really fall out of love with the old one. So I go through this process where if I'm writing a first draft, I have to be in love with it. And I have to delude myself into thinking that this is the greatest thing that anybody has ever written in the history of time. Because if I don't have that delusion, I just I don't feel motivated enough to to commit to the book to the degree that I need to commit. So uh, I have to have this deluded um, infatuation with the book during the first draft. Then I have to temper that during the editing process and the rewriting process, where I have to step back and I have to look at it a bit more objectively. Uh, and I don't want to I don't want to hate the book at this stage, but I, I want to. Have a really reasonable view of it. Ideally, I want to be able to see the the book as some um, ordinary person who didn't write it would be seeing the book. Uh, and then once I finished rewriting it, uh, usually by that point I've rewritten it so many times and I've reread it so many times that I just can't stand the sight of it anymore. And and the thought of picking it up one more time makes me want to throw up. So. That's what normally happens. Um, but with Lexicon, I, I finished that book off and, and I felt really good about it even when I'd finished. It was a difficult process because it's quite a complex book. It has, you know, it jumps around in time and it jumps around in character and, and that was very difficult at times to get straight. But um, I would go back and look at it sometimes and think, yeah, this is actually still pretty good. And that, um, that made me, that was a challenging when I was trying to find a new story because in, unless I feel like, okay, that, that last book I finished was trash, I can, I want to do something new now. I find it hard to move on. Uh, and I always do want to move on. I don't want to write the same book twice ever. So uh, I struggled a bit with that for a while. Uh, and I ended up writing a bunch of different books at once. And so this is probably one of the drawbacks of that organic gardener process that we discussed earlier, where because I do just jump in and, and thrash around a bit, there's no timeline on when I might get to a productive part of that process. So I I thrashed around with a bunch of different scenes and books and ideas that were one book and then they were two books and then they went back to one again. And I ended up with four different ideas that I was developing uh, simultaneously. So that is, um, I discovered a really fast way to finish no books because I've got all these projects that are getting longer and longer, but none of them are actually finished. Yeah. Uh, and so what happened is Providence, um, which was actually the fun one, which probably should have given me my clue that when I was finding myself having more fun with Providence than anything else, I should have realized that that was going to be the one. But uh, so Providence, I finished first, uh, but then immediately after that, I had um, these other three books that were kind of in advanced stages um, of, of development. So I have finished the first draft of the book that I think will be published next, um, which is quite different to Providence. Um, it's still science fiction, but it's more the the kind of classic or well, not classic. It's more of the typical science fiction that I write, which is it's set in the modern day, but it's there's some twist to it. There's some slightly out of this world change the world. Uh, so it's uh, it's that kind of book rather than um, aliens and spaceships like Providence. Yeah. So, yeah, I, um, I really enjoyed that. That was, um, that was really good for me because, it, again, I, as I mentioned earlier, I've been doing a bit more planning lately. So it meant that I could write this book and not get to the last quarter of it and feel like, oh, my God, how on earth am I going to wrap this thing up, which is what tends to happen when you're more of the gardener than the architect. Uh, So, yeah, first draft is done. Um, I'm at the point now, of course, where I have to uh, rewrite it. So it's going to be less fun from this point forward. But, um, yeah, that's where I'm at. And I'm really pleased about that because when I started this as my career, I was told by an editor that ideally what you want to do is you want to write one book a year. And that way you have a book published. It comes out in hardback. Then it's a year later it goes into paperback. And at that point, you are publishing your next book um, at the same time. And so they sort of you can promote two at one. It's just uh, it's just the best way to do it. And obviously, I've never been able to do that because this is Providence's book number six in 20 years. But uh, I may actually be able to do it this next time. So, yeah, I feel like I might have finally ticked that box. I got it, well, uh, I know, uh,
0: I know you're a little strapped for time. I know you got another, uh, another chat coming up here in a few minutes, but I just wanted to just take a moment. Just thank you so much for, for popping on. I know this was, uh, this definitely isn't a, you know, world book tour or anything, but uh, no, it's you know, not. Any, anytime you can, you know, chat about your book and kind of spread it to maybe a few more people is always a you know great opportunity. And I, and I appreciate you taking the time to to use my you know podcast as kind of a platform for it. And it's it's been an amazing chat with you.
1: Oh thank you so much for having me on, David. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And uh, and guys that are listening, uh, you can find Max on Twitter at Max Berry, That's B-A-R-R-Y. And you can also find his website maxberry.com. Uh, and again, Providence is in stores everywhere. Uh, as far as I know, I mean, I, I've seen it on Amazon. So if it's on Amazon, it's everywhere, right? Um, yep, that's and, right. and, uh, and, and I'm really enjoying it so far. I should have a review up probably tomorrow on the website. So, uh, definitely check it out. If you are looking for a, you know, sci-fi space travel, crazy alien novel. Um, <laughs> it's definitely up there. So, uh, but again, Max, thank you so much. And, uh, and good luck with the rest of your, uh, release you know days the days ahead and uh, we'll be looking forward to your next novel
1: awesome thanks very much
0: Uh, thank you for those of you who haven't had the opportunity to check out providence stay tuned for a clip from the audiobook presented by penguin random house audio and read for you by Brittany presley i hope you enjoy it
2: before he could go before a global audience of two billion they wanted to fix his eyebrows He sat before a light ringed mirror, on a chair that went up and down at the whim of a woman with silver lips, and tried to keep still. The left is fine, she said. The right concerns me. He'd been in the chair for two hours. There had been a makeup person, a hairdresser, a stylist, and now this second makeup person. His face felt like a plaster model, ready to crack and fall to pieces if he smiled. Smile, she said. It did not crack. Can I get some three-base paste for Gilligan? Gilly, he said reflexively. He didn't like Gilligan. I'm so nervous I could barf, said the person to his left. That blueberry yogurt is definitely starting to feel like a mistake. Three others were in chairs alongside him, The speaker was Talia Beanfield, the life officer. Gilly glanced at her, but she was recording herself on her phone. He was supposed to be recording clips, too. Service wanted to stitch them together into a behind-the-scenes feed of the launch ceremony. She caught his eye and smiled. For most of the last half hour, Beanfield had been immersed in towels and clips. She looked good now, though. Her hair was artful and honey brown and glimmered as she moved. Did you try the yogurt, Gilly? No, smart, she said to her phone. This is why Gilly's intel and I'm life. I'm sorry, said the makeup woman. I need to get in there. She stood between them and resumed her attack on Gilly's face. Stop giving the makeup people a hard time, Gilly, Beanfield said you and your unruly eyebrows eyebrow said the woman it's only the right a deviant said beanfield lens here called a woman by the door last looks please gilly took the opportunity to check out the others jackson the captain was reclining with a white bib tucked around her neck eyes closed possibly asleep She hadn't recorded any clips either, as far as Gilly had noticed. Between her and Beanfield was Anders, the weapons officer. He had a shock of dark hair and light stubble, and was probably the most handsome man Gilly had ever met. On the occasions, Gilly hadn't been able to avoid seeing his own press. He was always struck by how out of place he looked, like a fan who'd won a contest to meet celebrities. Jackson. The war hero, Anders, the tortured dreamboat, Beanfield, the effortlessly charming social butterfly. And Gilly, a permanently startled looking AI guy who couldn't find a good place to put his hands. The door opened. A man in fatigues entered and clapped his hands. This was Len, their handler from service. Thirty-ish and upbeat, carrying a little extra weight. It's time. How's everybody feeling? Like a painted whore, said Anders. That's perfect, said Lynn. We're good to move then, yes? Yes, said Jackson, awake after all. She peeled off her bib and was at the door before the rest of them had managed to extract themselves from their makeup thrones. The silver-lipped woman stepped back and, for the first time in a while, looked into Gilly's eyes instead of around them. Good luck out there, she said.
0: Hope you guys enjoyed that fantastic chat with Max Berry. Uh, definitely check out his brand new book, Providence, which is out everywhere. Uh, again, coming up uh, this weekend, we've got Rob Hayes. Next week, we've got Nick Martell and Nicholas Eames and Ryan Van Loan. It's a ridiculously filled week next week. But uh, like I said, I'm trying to get as many as I can in you guys. Um And then the following week, we've got Nathan Ballengrood and Jeremy Zoll. And then I just added Blackhawks author David Rag, and then potentially have uh, Alex White coming on at the end of the month. He's written a space opera trilogy for Orbit. and He's also working on another addition to the Alien franchise. Um, And then I'm going to try to get Jeremy Robert Johnson uh, in here as well. He just uh, will be coming out with a novel called The Loop uh, from Saga in September. Uh, which if you want to check out um, my review for it, it's on the website, Uh But yeah, guys, uh, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll check you next time.